I'm Rick. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews, interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom agony. Kleffel, and welcome to the Agony Column podcast. This week's podcast is a special interview by Jen Ramage of Susan Strait, author of A Million Nightingales. And now, Jen Ramage and Susan Strait. We lived between. Le Cartier was one long street, houses lining the dirt road to the cane fields and sugar house. But a grove of pecan trees separated the street from the Bordelon's house. Tretit, the cook, lived in the kitchen behind the house. And Nonc-Pierre, the groom, lived in the barn. But my mother's house was in a clearing near three pecan trees at the edge of the cane fields. A path led from the main road to our yard. Madame Bordelon could see us from her second-floor gallery, could see what color clothes we hung or whether we had washed the table linens, but she couldn't hear what we said. Under the trees, my mother spoke to me every day, but only when she had something to teach me and only when we were alone. When I was young, I asked her the same thing many times until I understood. Ma mère, oui, who do I belong to? Me. She never hesitated. You are mine. No one else? No. Not monsieur? No. Not God? Then my mother would pause. I watched her pour another dipper of water onto the wood hashes held in a trough over the big pot because we were making soap. No, she said then, stirring the lye water, and I knew to stay away. One flying drop could burn the skin, brown to pink, pink and shiny rays as mother-of-pearl buttons on my mother's forearm. No, she said. Here on earth, you belong to me. If you died, then you would belong to God. Labas. She lifted her chin to the sky above the pecan trees. Ebien. I would die too, because I would need to be gone, gone with you. Gone? I asked her. There, not here, Labas, with you. This is Jen Ramage, KUSP. Today on the program, I'm joined by novelist Susan Strait, who is reading a section from her new novel, A Million Nightingales. Susan Strait is the author of five previous works, including I've Been in Sorrow's Kitchen and Licked Out All the Pot, and High Wire Moon, which was a finalist for the National Book Award and won the California Book Award here. She's a regular commentator for NPR, and her fiction and essays have appeared in Harper's, The New York Times, McSweeney's, Best American Short Stories, The Nation, Salon, Zoetrope, and many others. She's received a Lannan Foundation Award and a Guggenheim Fellowship. But today, she joins us here to tell us more about Monette and her new novel, A Million Nightingales. Welcome to the program, Susan Strait. Mm, thanks for having me. And you make me sound very impressive, <laughs> which won't matter at all once I get home and have to do the laundry. <laughs> well, that's what's nice. We write in our private lives and we receive accolades and then we have to go do the dirty work of living. I don't mind that. <laughs> so you've penned this book, A Million Nightingales, and it's set in the early 19th century Louisiana. And it's a tale of a slave girl's journey, really both emotional and physical, from her captivity to freedom. Uh, tell me what started you on this journey here. You're a longtime, lifelong resident of Riverside, California. This seems very far away for you. It did to me, too. In fact, I, I started a contemporary novel. When I finished High Wire Moon, I wasn't quite done with two of the characters from High Wire Moon. And there was a baby. And it's not the baby that you think if you've read the book. But anyway, there was an abandoned baby. 
and left in a mother's minivan. And this young mother that found the baby um, had just gotten divorced. And it turns out that she went to talk to her mother-in-law. And she said, why couldn't he stay with me? And her mother-in-law, who was from Louisiana, all the characters in this contemporary novel were born in a place like Riverside, mm-hmm. but their parents were all from Louisiana. And the mother-in-law was really hard, and she, she told her daughter-in-law, he didn't leave you. He couldn't stand to give all his love to those boys, the two sons. And this young woman was stunned, and the mother-in-law told her this story of their family under slavery in Louisiana, and I just stopped the contemporary novel 50 pages in, and I had to find out what would have happened in this family that the echoes would still be reverberating five generations later. And that's what happened. It took me five years to write this novel <laughs> and, and to find out why this family felt this way about children, and that's where Monette came up. Well, this is a book at its core about mothers and daughters and sons. It's a family saga. What did you find in your research, though, that really talked to you about these people who, Monette is of mixed race. She's someone who is elegantly um, attired. She's someone who is loved for her long hair that she must hide. Um, And men look at her just too much. She's somebody who lives in this in-between world where she has a lot of American English used. She speaks a lot of French, and her mother's from Africa. How did you find her, and how common is someone like Monette back then in Louisiana? Well, she's actually common right now because that's how my children look. And as, as I'm working on this contemporary novel, and then I sort of became obsessed with this, this notion of this family, there were three things that were in my head. And one was, I've been, you know, married into my husband's neighborhood. I've been in that neighborhood for 30, 35 years now. That's a long time. And I remember being at a party one night, a, a reunion at the park, and somebody said to this one guy from Louisiana, because there were a lot of Louisiana people, and my husband's family is married into Um, a certain other family, which is from Louisiana. And they said, well, how'd you get here to California anyway? And this man said, well, I had this beautiful daughter and Mr. So-and-so decided he was going to take her. So we had to pack up in the middle of the night and we came out here to California. That happened in 1950, not in 1910. And the the daughter was beautiful and light-skinned and she was still considered prey to this particular powerful white man. So that was something I never forgot, even though I was young. And then I started looking at my own kids, and I was imagining, well, what would their lives have been like in in early colonial Louisiana? And so you're right. This isn't a novel about slavery. To me, it became a novel about parenthood during a time of slavery, which is, well, how are you going to raise your kids in 1811 Louisiana? Because a lot of novels about slavery are set in the late 1850s, and the Civil War is on the horizon. Slavery had been around for a hundred years already, and at this time, no one's even thinking that freedom is going to show up. So Monette has to buy her own freedom. She has to figure out how to get herself free, as well as her child. And she sees the contradictions in the daily life of all women in Louisiana as well. One of her, um, the owners of the plantation where she first works with her mother before she is sold and taken away, she becomes uh, the primary um, caregiver for their young daughter as she's educated, Selafine. And Selafine has remarkable insight into this idea that while she is no slave, she is um, born and raised for two things, to bear sons and to be married off um, for a good man. That's right. And, and the interesting part about Selafine is, again, I wanted Monette to be what I would consider, my children are, are, are really smart, all three of my girls. And sometimes that's a liability for them 
even now, this very time, people will say, well, you know, who cares about that? And why do you care about books? And you shouldn't act so smart. And I was thinking about Cephaline and Wynette as early gate kids, you know, gifted and talented, <laughs> how they would have thrived if they were here now. And Cephaline is brilliant and she loves books and science. And because she's unattractive, Moinette has to comb lead blacking into her hair and apply mercury paste to her face. And the two of them have this partnership of knowledge that, that they're not valued for their brains and they never will be. But in the end, she teaches Moinette a lot. And then when Moinette is sold away, the second woman that she ends up taking care of is also very ambitious, and she's punished for her ambition and her beauty as well. Well, let's talk about Pelagi. This is the woman you're talking about who comes over from France to live with her um, half-brother for a time and hopefully make a better way in the world. She's divorced when we meet her. And this is the second home where um, Monette must work, and it is the first home where she must work without her mother. And so when we meet her there, she doesn't let on that she knows how to care for anything in the house, that she can get out s sweat and blood out of with laundry soap making her own soap. She just says she can work in the fields and use her hands because she doesn't want people to really know her. She uses both her skills, it seems, and her language as real power. It's strange because um, someone said to me about Monette, well, she's so smart, but she was a slave. And my oldest daughter, um, when I told her that comment, she said, but only people's bodies were owned. You couldn't own someone's mind. And Monette, when she's torn away from her mother and she's only 14, she's obsessed with getting back to her mother and she wants to work in the field so that she's more likely to be able to run away. But once she does run away and she's recaptured and brought back and she's sent to work with Pelagie in the house, in my mind, she, she realized that she would have to use her brains to get back to her mother someday. And Pelagie, actually, what happens to her, I, did, I read about a hundred books and historical documents, and I read, I read um, colonial docu documents about early French settles, settlers in Louisiana, and I can read and speak French, so that made it much easier. But the Baroness de Pontalba, someone whose buildings were designed and built in the early 19th century, and they're still standing. They've survived everything. Hurricane Katrina didn't bother them at all. They're in Jackson Square. She was married off to someone in France, taken over to France, and her father-in-law decided that her dowry wasn't big enough. And he imprisoned her for a year, and then he shot her one day. He just got tired of her, and he shot her in the chest and in the hand and in the shoulder. But she lived. She survived way back then, and she ended up coming back to Louisiana and building these Pontabo buildings and she was kind of an inspiration for Pelagie because even a French woman was considered property in a sense and Pelagie is punished for trying to escape much in the same way that Monette was punished for trying to escape and Monette spends the whole novel trying to get back to her mother in a sense and um, I thought that her single-mindedness and her devotion were direct responses to how her mother had raised her her mother said, you are the only reason I'm here. You're what I care about. And sadly enough, that's pretty much the way I feel about my kids. I spent 80% of my day thinking about my three kids and worrying about them and hoping everything will be fine. And that's the way I felt when I was writing this at night. Um, I felt the same way. It's interesting to see Monette change, too, as she becomes a mother. She is raped in the second home where, where she lives, and it's... Um, a situation where she is raped multiple times because any any slave who was called upon to go to the bedroom had to do so uh, without question. That's right. 
And when she first feels this thing growing inside her, she says, I hate the thing inside me. How did it reach up into my throat and push out the coffee and the biscuit? Did it not want food? Did it want to kill me? When it swelled and began to twitch inside, I pictured the swiveled white organ into Dr. Tom's jar. She had this image of this doctor who she knew early on in her plantation days who showed her the organs of the body. And she pictured it like grape screw, like a womb. What if the womb split and I died? And she says, most poignantly, I hated the gift even more then because I would never see my mother again. Yeah, I mean, I, I imagine this girl being so young and, and being pregnant and people would say, well, how could someone love a, a baby that's a product of a rape? And in the beginning, I don't think Monette had any intentions of loving that child because she missed her own mother. And that's all she measured the world by was her, her the absence of her own mother. And even when the baby's born, she doesn't love it at first because it's, it's not of her, she feels. But then as time goes by, she does she does love her son and but you can imagine how many hundreds and thousands of women raised children and loved them that were the product of rape and you could imagine then the man that i knew when i was young saying mr so and so was coming to get my daughter and in many ways i thought about how again four and five generations later there were all these reverberations of one act maybe that happened years ago when one man took one woman and now there might be 50 people on the planet that were the result of that and everyone had to love each other and raise each other and that just I couldn't I couldn't let that that notion go when I was writing about Monette I didn't want to idealize it but I didn't want her to hate him forever but I didn't know what would happen and as I was writing and he was crawling Mm -hmm. then I felt her growing tender toward him she, in fact, resents it at first and, and tries to look away, tries not to feed him when he's hungry, tries to, to pawn him off on other women who work in the house and who are also able to give him milk. And she runs away to try and get her own freedom um, and decides to leave him but can't. She can't. And, you know, I think what happened, she remembered her own mother, her own mother who was f- born in Africa um, was given for a week to a white sugar broker who visited the plantation and then never returned. And the gift, as she was called, was Monette. And I'm sure that Monette was thinking about her own mother who saw this child who looked nothing like her, didn't resemble her at all. And you're right, she doesn't want to love him, but in the end she does love him and she can't let him go. And then she spends the rest of the novel um, trying to figure out how to make him have a life, which was a very difficult thing back then. I mean, some women who had children like that weren't allowed to keep them if they were boys a girl of mixed race and very light skin and straight hair was useful for one thing and very useful but a boy i actually read in documents historical documents about women who said if they're boys take them away and drown them like kittens not the slave women or the women who had the children but the the owners if they're boys they reminded someone of an indiscretion if they were girls they could be sold away for sex and i mean i i just i was stunned to read that and yet it was true and the girls were called daughters of joy that was something i wrote about in the novel that also gave me shivers of recognition i mean how can you call someone a daughter of joy when joy was probably the last thing anyone 
felt at the moment of conception who was someone like Monette. It's so brutal. No one has, like you say, and like your daughter said, so, so tellingly, this idea that your mind is not enslaved. It is your body. But boy, are these bodies enslaved. Your book is full of, of blood and pain and violence that is emotional and physical. And I wonder what it was like to live in that world for so long. I know you felt that the characters carried you somewhere and you were fascinated by what we're all living with today in Riverside, California, by what came by Louisiana in 1811. But how did you keep yourself going in all of this? My, my ultimate reasons seem always to be, when I wrote Sorrow's Kitchen, it was about a mother raising these, these twin boys, and I wondered how she got to California. And in High Wire Moon, there was a mother from Oaxaca. And I know that just as William Faulkner has his postage stamp of soil, <laughs> and Louise Erdrich writes about her area, um, the Chippewa Reservation, and her landscape, and other writers have their own landscapes too. I've always been obsessed since I was a child with how everyone got to California. My mother's from Switzerland, and my stepfather's from Canada, and I, I met my future husband in the eighth grade, and no one knew where his mother was born. We got her a birth certificate when she was 60. Um, his father was from Oklahoma, but his mother, no one knew if she was born in Arkansas, Mississippi, or Calexico because her mother already had three girls and she was alone and she was traveling and she'd had a very hard life. So when my mother-in-law was 60, we got her a birth certificate. We went to our congressman and it said she was born in Calexico because she wanted to travel to Germany to, to see my sister-in-law who was stationed in Germany. All those stories when I was growing up and listening, was, how did someone get here and how did they make a life? But also, what did they keep with them from Mississippi or Switzerland or Louisiana? So this this idea of this family, you're right, resonates even now in the contemporary novel, but also my oldest daughter, Gayla, who is exactly, it, she, she is exactly what Monette is in a sense. She's very, very smart. She's very beautiful. She brought me Rolling Stone. And Kanye West was on the cover. Mm -hmm. And do you know what Kanye says in there? And this was, you know, two months ago. He's, at, he's questioned about this song where there's a line, she's going to leave you, he's going to leave you for a white girl. And he's asked, well, so do you disapprove of race mixing? And he says, no, no, I'm all in favor of race mixing. If it weren't for race mixing, we wouldn't have any video girls. And then someone, the interviewer says something else, and he says, no, my friends and I love mutts. We think mutts are cool. My word. So Gayla was quite offended. And first she said, what does that mean, video girls? That someone like me, that's all I'm good for? Because I'm light-skinned, I have long hair, I'm good for dancing in a video in my bathing suit? And then she said, and if anybody came and called us mutts, I'd hate to see what we would do to them. And she looked at me and I looked at her, and how is this very much different from calling someone a daughter of joy? You're calling someone a mutt. And... I just thought, again, I mean, I was getting ready to, to be able to talk about this book, and I stayed up for a long time that night. And how I lived it was, I think, that I, I looked at my children's faces, you know, even after they're asleep, even though they're big, they're 16 and 14 and 10, I still go down the hallway around midnight, and I open the door, and I make sure they're breathing. 
because my oldest one had brain surgery mm. um, five years ago. So I open her door and, you know, her lava lamp is on. I'm not sure why the lava lamp has to be on, <laughs> but it, it's, it's on. It's and a modern I, day nightlight. I listen. I make sure she's breathing. I go in the other room. I pull up the covers over one. I listen for the other one. And I go back down the hallway and I work on this novel. And that's, I, that's how I was able to stay in the world, I think. They are, they are this novel too. They are because I, I don't know what people think when they look at my children, but I know what my children think when they look out at the world. And I guess I'm grateful that they tell me, but my instinct is still exactly the same as the woman in the novel. My job here on earth is to keep them alive. At one point, the mother says, every night I pray to keep you alive all day, um, healthy in the morning and, um, no, a, a, healthy in the morning, alive all day, and protected during the night when I will ask again. And that's the way I look at the world every day is, all right, everybody's okay now. And when I go to bed, I hope everybody's still awake in the morning. The sense of motherhood and this and this love, the, this almost sacrificial, all-encompassing love is so prevalent in the book with Monette and also with her mother. Even though her mother plays a very small role in the book, in a sense, her words guide us as Monette takes her journey Tell us a bit about her, because you get a sense that she's so symbolic of so many, but doesn't have much to say other than that she will make sure that Monette is as safe as she can be all of the time and coming back to her always. Yeah, I, I, the, I think a mother like that knew that all she really did have to offer was, these are the things I can teach you, and I can show you how to sew stitches as fine as an eyelash, and I can show you how to stuff... Uh, mattresses with moss because that'll be a good thing for you to know and I can tell you to be careful and I can tell you what I believe about the way the spirits and the world works and then as I was working on the novel and I was reading and reading and I I found this five page mention in this um, textbook a, a historical textbook I, I thank the the five books that I was able to use in the back of the novel um, the, a lot of the cleaning recipes and the, the really f fantastical recipes for getting getting um, ink out of dresses, they came from this book called The House Servant's Directory, published by Robert B. Roberts, which was the first book ever published by an African American in the United States in the early 1800s. And later his granddaughter would be the first African American child to integrate Boston schools. Those were his recipes for taking care of really large federal-style townhouses for rich politicians. The other mention, the five-page mention, was of a woman named Manon Baldwin who was bought by an American lawyer in Opelousas and freed when she was 30 years old, but she was not freed with her son, who was four. And she then had to, when she became free, her owner, it appears from the court documents, wouldn't sell her her own child but was willing to trade. So she had to buy a young female slave named Sophie, trade that young girl for her son, and then she owned her son. Well, I became obsessed with this story, and I went online, and I went to Louisiana twice, and I stood in front of the building she used to own, and I researched records. She could never read or write. So all of her life was contained just in court documents filed in, in the uh, county clerk's office in Opelousas. And so I actually found some of those documents and held them in my hand. She bought her son. 
she had a piece of paper that said she owned her own son. But according to the laws of that time in Louisiana, slaves could not be freed until they were 21. So she owned her own child, but he had then none of the rights or privileges that a freed person had. He couldn't have, he couldn't own his own clothing. He couldn't even earn any money or get an allowance. So she had to find some way to train him and provide for him. So she mortgaged him out and indentured him. And those men that she indentured him to kept moving away. In real life, all that's known about her is the last court document she sold him because she was swindled in a business deal and she was about to lose her house. And then he disappears. So the real life document gave no indication of what happened to him. And I was so obsessed with that story too, that wandering up and down the hallway and looking at my kids and you know, I'd go in there and I would touch their Kobe posters or their mm-hmm. stuffed animals and I would think, well, what could I do for these children if I had no way to provide for them and what would I teach them? And in the novel, that's what I wanted to write about is that Monette loves her son by this time, but she actually has to buy him and then she can't free him. And the idea of, of what he would feel about it he couldn't love her in the same way that she loved him because he hadn't been around her all his life. They would never be as close as she and her mother, like you, you pointed out. Yeah, and you see in here, you know, Jean-Paul is, is loved by so many for so long, her son, that he sort of even early on recognizes Monette, sees her as someone who people call his mother, but, but he doesn't have any kind of special kinship to her. In fact, she's rather intimidating. And then when she does this very thing, participate in a system that has oppressed her and so many others that she knows, everyone she knows, it's just a walking contradiction. It shows, I think, so beautifully that in A Million Nightingales, nothing is clear and true. And everyone is struggling for who they are and what they want to be and for their family to be safe and together. Yeah, life was so murky back then. As you pointed out, first the French made laws, and then the Spanish took over and made laws. Then the French had Louisiana again. And finally, the Americans made the most severe laws. The Americans were the ones that made it almost impossible to free slaves. Toward the end of, I mean, toward the end of the time before the Civil War was even thought of, Americans said, if you free a slave, he has to leave the state within 10 days because we don't want freed slaves staying around and causing trouble. So you see the Faustian kinds of bargains that people had to make. People bought their parents back then and could free their parents. They worked for 20 years to buy their parents. But if they bought their children, they couldn't free them. They owned them, which meant that if their child were lost on the street, someone could actually take the child and say, this is a runaway slave. I'm going to sell this person. And the mother could do nothing. Will you let your slave run away? So, I mean, this the, the very murkiness, you're right, of who is a family and how do you make a family? That's exactly then what I'm trying to explore in the contemporary novel, which is this baby is found and who's going to make a family for this baby? And there's a character named Fantine in A Million Nightingales and there's a character named Marie-Thérèse. And the two women I'm writing about are named Fantine and Marie-Thérèse, and they have to find out how they were named after these people um, who exist in in this present novel, A Million Nightingales. So Susan Strait, A Million Nightingales is part of a trilogy in your mind, in your writing life. Tell us how you see that evolving and what you aim to accomplish with these three novels that um, you can't accomplish with one sitting alone on a shelf. 
Well, I think what happened, I was so sad when my contemporary novel got hijacked. <laughs> At first, I tried to braid. People who are listening who are writers um, will understand this too, because I tried to braid the historical narrative with the contemporary narrative, and it was fairly disastrous because they were just so starkly in contrast. I find that novels, a lot of historical novels, when you try to braid it with a contemporary thread, I think it's really hard to make them equally compelling. So I abandoned that idea. And when I spent five years doing this one and inhabiting this woman's life, it was really scary. I was very, it's not that like I walked around all day being strange. I didn't. But the minute my children went to bed, I would inhabit this world. And there was this other level of my brain operating like, what's Monette going to do? She has to save Jean-Paul. What is she going to do? But the contemporary novel is going to try to address the notion of what do you bring from if, if these people then came in the 50s, they fled Louisiana, which was still a scary place, and they settled in a place like Riverside. What do they carry with them from Monette? What do they carry with them from the 1927 flood in Louisiana? Now they're in California. Can they not erase the entire past and start over? No, they can't. Any more than my mother can erase her life in Switzerland before she came to California. Most of what my mother taught me when I was a child had to do with the hardships of her life in Switzerland. It's true, we are what comes before us and we need to honor the past and embrace the future and then it becomes all one seamless line. Susan Strait, thank you so much for sharing what family means to you here today. Well, your questions are always so good. <laughs> Thanks for having <laughs> yeah, me. Take care. You're listening to Rick Kleffel, the Agony Column podcast. You can find additional reviews interviews, print interviews, and book commentary five days a week at trashotroncom slash agony.